0: You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. It's certainly a pleasure to be here again. I look out now and I see familiar faces and I'm glad that you do come back again. Uh, I find a rich sense of fellowship among you. I don't know, maybe it's there's, there's kindred spirits among the Christians from Northern Ireland and the northeast of England. But, but anyway, we're we one in Christ, and we treasure the things that matter for the kingdom of God. And our subject tonight is, is one who was a great servant of the King, a great servant of Jesus Christ. And he made a great impact in his day and generation. And uh, his books, particularly the letters of Samuel Rutherford, live on. And are avidly read by, by many Christians, and they get great value and encouragement from them, so we 're going to take a broad sweep tonight, at look at, looking at the life of this servant of God'll be introduced to the times in which he lived and the kind of problems that he faced and the difficulties that he encountered. <coughs> so Simon Rutherford, preacher, pastor, professor, and political analyst one August afternoon in 1991, as I was strolling around the old cathedral graveyard in St Andrews, I came across a headstone with this inscription, an inscription which aroused my curiosity, and it read What tongue, what pen, or skill of men can famous Rutherford commend? His learning justly raised his fame, true godliness adorned his name he did converse with things above, acquainted with Emmanuel's love. That headstone of course <coughs> marked the spot where Samuel Rutherford, distinguished Covenanter Minister of the 17th century, was buried in the year 1661. He was born in the year 1600 of respectable parents his father being a farmer in the village of Nesbet, in the parish of Crailing in Roxburghshire. As a three-year-old boy, he had a near encounter with death when he fell down the village well. His playmates ran to raise the alarm, and when help arrived, young Samuel was sitting on a hillock, cold and dripping. He informed his would-be rescuers. A bonny white man came and drew me out of the well. Andrew Boner makes the comment, Whether or not he really fancied that an angel had delivered him, we cannot tell. But it is plain that, at all events, his boyish thoughts were already wandering in the region of the sky. Looking then at several aspects of Rutherford's life and ministry, we think first of all of Rutherford the student, Rutherford the student. After being educated in the border town of Jedburgh, he went to Edinburgh in 1617 to study at what is now the university. Graduating in 1621 with a Master of Arts degree, he was made in 1623 Regent of Humanity. Uh, in today's uh, parlance, uh, Professor of Latin Language and Literature. The young scholar may have relished the prospect of spending all his life in the sheltered confines of the university, but such was not to be. According to an entry in the Berg records of Edinburgh for the 3rd of February 1626, it had been declared by the principal of the college, a man by the name of John Adamson, that Mr. Samuel Rutherford, Regent of Humanity, has fallen in fornication with Euphremi Hamilton and has committed one great scandal in the college. This led Rutherford to resign his office and to devote his energies to private study. Now, most of Rutherford's biographers have sought to defend Rutherford, suggesting that the real offence was simply marrying without academic or episcopal authority. However, the weight of the evidence prevented by by a a recent scholar, uh, John Coffey, and his research would indicate that Rutherford was in fact guilty of the charge. Whatever the situation, it appears that the Lord used, the Lord used this turbulent period in Rutherford's life to lead to his conversion. Although few details of his conversion are known, yet in one of his letters he speaks of, quote, loitering on the road too long. And another he refers to, quote, the wasted years before he discovered The loveliness of Christ. Thereafter we find Rutherford pleading with people to come to Christ early in life. For example in a letter to Jean Brown he had a word of advice for her to give to her son Patrick. I desire Patrick to give Christ his young love, even the flower of it, and to put it by all others. It is good to start soon to the way. He should therefore have a great advantage in the evil day. Rutherford was not to remain in quiet solitude for long. In 1627 he was ordained to the Christian ministry and installed in Anwath, a rural parish in Kirkabre in Galloway. This was at a time in the history of the Church of Scotland when episcopacy was becoming increasingly dominant, being promoted by Charles I. His father, James I, uh, had disliked Presbyterianism, viewing it as a threat to royal supremacy. He reasoned that if hierarchical government was dispensed with in the Church, it would soon be dismantled in the state and his authority as king would be undermined. And so he coined the phrase no bishop, no king. Although he died in 1625, his son Charles inherited his prejudices and in Archbishop Laud, he had a very willing enforcer of his policy. By 1627, The door was closing on Presbyterian ordination, but Rutherford was installed in Anwath just before the door was barred. Rutherford the student, now Rutherford the preacher. His preaching in Anwath soon began to attract attention. Though he did not possess an attractive voice, it being rather shrill, yet he was described by The historian Woodrow as, quote, one of the most moving and affectionate preachers in his time, or perhaps in any age of the church. Aspects of his preaching which deserve attention, or which deserve mention, were his beautiful way with words, his graphic use of metaphor, and above all his constant focus on Christ. An English merchant travelling in Scotland in the 17th century made the following observation. I came to Irvine and heard a well-favoured, proper old man with a long beard, David Dixon, and that man showed me all my heart. Then I went to St Andrews where I heard a sweet, majestic-looking man, Robert Blair, and he showed me the majesty of God. After him I heard a little fair man, Samuel Rutherford, and he showed me the loveliness of Christ. A more recent evaluation of Rutherford's intellectual and verbal ability uh, is given by Adam Lockridge and He was no less enthusiastic about about his gifts. He writes, His poetic gifts had a full and free expression in the pulpit. He had no restraint when showing sinners the loveliness of Christ. His heart burnt fiercely. His imagination soared to great heights. And through it all he spoke to men in a simple, quaint and telling manner. And such preaching was highly effective for spiritual awakening and spiritual refreshment. A glance at some of Rutherford's sermons suggests how the doctrines of grace were preached in a compelling and in an imaginative manner. For example, as he describes the workings of grace in the life of the sinner, we get a feel for his style This is an excerpt from one of his sermons. The omnipotence of grace, working powerfully, overawes the soul, leading the thoughts and reason captive. And Christ works so strongly on the reasoning faculty, ravishing the understanding that all the witty reasonings are mastered. The mind is silenced and strongly drawn to apprehend Christ's beauty, so that without a choice, the mind cannot but convincingly see that there is none so desirable, none so fair and lovely as Christ. The mind is brought to a spiritual drunkenness, a sweet fury of heavenly propension, and to conclude... I cannot bypass such a lover as Christ. In another sermon, we see how clearly Rutherford understood the relationship between word and spirit as the God-appointed means of grace. Preaching, said Rutherford, indeed is God's means that he is ordained for that end and the way that he ordains for bringing souls to him. But when all is done, it is not the only means of bringing us to him. The special thing is that which is spoken by our Saviour himself in John 3, verse 8, that the wind that bloweth where it listeth, and no man knoweth whence it cometh or whither it goeth. We may preach until... You, until your head be rent, and our breasts burst, eh we may preach unto you till doomsday. And yet that will not do the turn, unless the upward calling of the Spirit be joined therewith. For an outward ear is one thing, and Christ, loosing all knots, and removing all impediments, another thing. Emphasizing the sovereignty of grace in the salvation of the sinner. The, The work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. And when it came to appealing to the sinner to forsake his sin and flee to Christ, Rutherford was a master. With reference to Ezekiel 18 and verse 33, he makes the point about God. He rejoices in the homecoming of a sinner. And then he presses home the the application. Come home to him and seek his face. Repent of your ill ways. And so make the Lord dance and sing that he has gotten home, one who was sinning away from him. Come home to the Lord and repent of sin, that there may be a psalm over thy repentance in heaven. He truly had a passion for the souls of men. Captured by Elizabeth Cousins in her poem, part of which we, we sung earlier, The Sands of Time, and she catches the evangelical fervour of this 17th century preacher. Uh, permit me to quote a, a couple of verses. Fair anworth of the by the Solway, to me thou still art dear." Even from the verge of heaven I drop for thee a tear. O, oh, if one soul from Anwath meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Now, such preaching was not without its impact. This covenanter preacher would rise at three in the morning to pray and study and meditate on God and his word. Now he may have laboured in a remote, isolated country parish, as Anwoth was, yet crowds flocked to him, and flocked to hear him from neighbouring parishes, and from neighbouring towns, throughout the southwest of Scotland. And through that, many were soundly converted to Christ. This, I believe, explains why That region of Scotland, above all other regions, remained so loyal to Christ and to the crown rights of the Redeemer in face of intense persecution a generation later. Rutherford the Preacher. Now to comment briefly on Rutherford the Pastor. Rutherford's preaching was matched by his pastoral care, the pastoral care that he gave to the members of his congregation. The man who was a master in the pulpit was also a skilled pastor in the home. The one who, in the early years of his ministry, laid his young wife and two of his children in the grave was well able to comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that he himself had received from God the depth and feeling of his pastoral care becomes evident in his letters, which we will consider later. Such was the thoroughness with which Rutherford approached his pastoral labours that he was considered a marvel to his contemporaries. A neighbouring minister, James Urkark of Kinloss, said of him, For such a piece of clay as Mr. Rutherford, I never knew one in Scotland like him. He seemed to be always praying, always preaching, always visiting the sick, always teaching in the schools, always writing treatises, always reading and studying. I never knew of one in Scotland like him. Rutherford the pastor. Then Rutherford the correspondent. In 1936, Rutherford was banished from his parish in Anwath by the Episcopal Party, banished to Aberdeen. Little Rutherford sorely sorely felt this painful separation, yet he was unable to triumph in the midst of adversity. He mournfully said concerning his enforced silence, I had but one eye and they have put it out. In another letter, he put it this way, next to Christ, I had but one joy, the apple of the eye of my delights, to preach Christ, my Lord, and they have violently plucked that away from me. The Episcopal party may have separated this pastor from his parish, but it could not separate him from Christ. In a letter to a minister of a neighbouring parish, the Reverend William Gleish, this is what he wrote My Lord Jesus is kinder to me than ever he was. It pleaseth him to dine and sup with his afflicted prisoner. A king feasteth with me, and his spikenard casteth a sweet smell. I dare not say, but my Lord Jesus both fully recompensed my sadness with his joys, my losses with his own presence. I find it a sweet and rich thing to exchange my sorrows with Christ's joys, my afflictions, With that sweet peace I have with himself. Such was the sense of Christ's presence in his banishment that he described himself to be in Christ's palace. And from this setting a new work opened up for him. If his lips were closed, his pen was busy. Of the 365 letters that were subsequently published, 220 were written from Aberdeen. His correspondents were chiefly persons from Galloway, where Anwoth was situated, and from Ayrshire, the two counties in Scotland and the southwest of Scotland that had been most affected by his ministry. And he wrote to all classes of people, to lairds and their ladies, to ministers of the gospel, uh, to, to various friends and to Christians in humble circumstances. These letters for which Rutherford continues to be famous have been considered by some to be second only to the Bible in spiritual usefulness. They are intensely pastoral in content, and he emerged from the pain of a man who was well acquainted with grief. About his letters, a modern scholar writes, They are deeply personal, full of pastoral advice to women suffering from depression, bereavement, and lack of spiritual assurance. An example of this pastoral care is found in the counsel that he gave Lady Kenyer, On the death of her daughter. Rutherford comforted this Christian lady with the thought concerning her daughter. She is not sent away, but only sent before, like unto a star, which, going out of our sight, doth not die and vanish, but shineth in another hemisphere. To this same lady who experienced many other sorrows, Rutherford wrote in another letter, The thorn is one of the most cursed and angry and crabbed weeds that the earth yieldeth. And yet out of it springeth the rose, one of the sweetest smelling flowers, and most delightful to the eye that the earth hath your Lord shall make joy and gladness out of your afflictions. For all his roses have a fragrant smell. Wait for the time when his own body, sorry, wait for the time when his own holy hand shall hold them to your nose. And if you would have present comfort under the cross, be much in prayer. For all that time your faith Kisseth Christ, and He kisseth the soul. The spiritual comfort Rutherford imparted to numerous individuals, he also communicated in several pastoral letters sent from Aberdeen to his precious flock in Anwath. And in one such pastoral letter, this is what he wrote. I know this world is a forest of thorns in your way to heaven, but you must go through it. Acquaint yourselves with the Lord. Hold fast Christ. Hear his voice only. Bless his name. Sanctify and keep it holy. It is day. Keep the new commandment. Love one another. Let the Holy Spirit dwell in your bodies and be clean and holy. Love not the world, lie not. Love and follow truth. Learn to know God. Keep in mind what I taught you, for God will seek an account of it when I am far from you. What a letter to the congregation. Reference has already been made to Rutherford's earnest and affectionate preaching of Christ in Anwath and his pleading with sinners to embrace the Saviour. Such evangelistic passion is also found in his letters as he applied the Gospel personally to individuals. To young John Gorton of Cardinus, this is what he wrote. Oh, how sweet a day Have you had? But this is a fair day that runneth fast away. See how ye have spent it, and consider the necessity of salvation. And tell me, in the fear of God, if you have made it sure. I am persuaded that you have a conscience, and begin to indent and contract with Christ in time while salvation is in your offer this is the accepted time this is the day of salvation play the merchant for you cannot expect another market day when this is done therefore let me again beseech you to consider in this your day the things that belong to your peace before they be hid from your eyes imagine receiving that letter from the exiled pastor in Aberdeen. Rutherford, having begun to write to this young man about the salvation of a soul, continued with the following earnest entreaty, so illustrative of his style. Dear brother, fulfill my joy and begin to seek the Lord while he may be found. Forsake the follies of deceiving and vain youth lay hold upon eternal life. Warring, night drinking, and the misspending of the Sabbath, and neglecting of prayer in your house, and refusing of an offered salvation, will burn up your soul with the terrors of the Almighty when your awakened conscience shall flee in your face. Although Rutherford felt acutely the pain of separation from his beloved people in Anwath, yet he had such rich experiences of Christ in Aberdeen that he was led to write to Alexander Gordon the following lines. My dear brother, I cannot but speak what I have felt. Seeing my Lord Jesus hath broken a box of spikenard upon the head of his poor prisoner. And it is hard to hide a sweet smell. It is a pain to smother Christ's love. It will be out, whether we will or not. If we did but speak according to the matter, a cross for Christ should have another name. Yea, a cross, especially when he cometh with his arms full of joy, is the happiest hard tree that ever was laid upon my weak shoulder. Christ and his cross together are sweet company and a blessed couple. My prison is my palace. My sorrow is with child of joy. My losses are rich losses. My pain, easy pain. My heavy days Our holy and happy days. These excerpts from the letters demonstrate that the Lord turned Samuel Rutherford's exile in Aberdeen as a means to extend the gospel. In Providence, it also provided the Christian church in subsequent generations with a spiritual legacy which has proved so spiritually beneficial to many. Rutherford the Correspondent. Now to look briefly at Rutherford the Author. Rutherford the Author. When James Yucart said that Rutherford was always writing, he touched upon what would be Rutherford's legacy to subsequent generations of Christians. The minister in Anwath had 16 books published in his lifetime, with several others being published pos- posthumously, posthumously. The most famous of his books are Lex Rex, The Law and the King, and his letters, both of which have gone through numerous editions and are still in print. It was his first publication in 1636 which brought him to the attention of the authorities. The book bore the Latin title, Exercitiatia Apologetia Pro Divina Gratia, translated Apologetic Exercises in Defence of Divine Grace. This book was a scholarly attack against the Arminians. The Episcopal Party in general at that time held Arminian views and so they seized upon this opportunity to silence Rutherford. He was called before the court of High Commission in Wigtown by Bishop Thomas Sitzer, because of his non-conformity to the Acts of Episcopacy, and because of this book against the Armenians. Rutherford was found guilty, deposed from his ministerial office, and banished to, to Aberdeen. That's the charge that Uh, Led him to be exiled for for 18 months. So after nine years of industrious pastoral labor, this devoted pastor was separated from his people for that year and a half. (coughs) Rutherford, the author. Now, Rutherford, the college professor. Rutherford, the college professor. Rutherford's exile in Aberdeen was of shorter duration than he might have expected. The Episcopal liturgy that Charles I and Archbishop Laud were imposing upon the Scottish Church eventually produced what has been called the Covenanter Revolution. The spark which ignited this was an incident which occurred in the High Kirk of Edinburgh, now known as St Giles Cathedral, in July 1637. That day when Dean Hannay began to read the liturgy, Jenny Geddes threw her stool at the preacher and that began a spontaneous and unpremeditated tumult and the service had to be closed. Eventually, uh, this led to the signing of the National Covenant in February 1638 and the historic General Assembly of November 1638 which re-established the crown rights of King Jesus over his church in Scotland. By this stage, Rutherford was back in harness, playing an active part in the assembly and working among his parishioners in his beloved and cherished Anwath. The assembly, however, prevailed upon Rutherford to use his exceptional gifts in the training of men for the Christian ministry. Reluctantly, Rutherford accepted, but only on the condition that he be permitted to preach every Lord's Day. In 1639, he was made Professor of Divinity at St Mary's College in St Andrews. Subsequently, he was made Principal of New College and Rector of St Andrews in the year 1649. And for over 20 years, Rutherford faithfully taught a generation of students for the Christian ministry, many of whom were to experience extreme persecution inflicted upon the Covenanters between 1660 and 1688. In men like Alexander Peaton and Donald Cargill and their younger colleagues, we see evidence of love and loyalty to Christ pulsating through their spiritual veins that they were able to endure to the end owed much in the human level to the little fair man in St Andrews who not only taught his students the doctrines of the faith but also showed them the loveliness of Christ. Rutherford the college professor then Rutherford the commissioner at the Westminster Assembly of Divines. The Solemn League and Covenant was signed in 1643 between the English parliamentarians, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans, of which you heard something last week, and the Scottish Covenanters to overthrow the increasingly tyrannical reign of Charles I. And One provision of the covenant was, I quote, the preservation of the Reformed faith in Scotland, the reformation of religion in England and Ireland, in doctrine, worship, discipline and government, according to the Word of God and the example of the best Reformed churches. Now, to fulfil this stipulation in the Covenant, the remit of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, already in session, was broadened to include the drafting of a confession of faith and directory for public worship. And we have that confession of faith, uh, still the confessional standards of many Presbyterian churches throughout the world and catechisms larger and shorter. Eight Scottish commissioners, one of whom was Samuel Rutherford, was appointed to join the assembly for this task. And so from 1643... To 1647, Rutherford spent most of his time in London. His contribution there with that of his fellow Scots was immense. It is reported that he played a very large part in the framing of the Confession and the Directory for Worship and the Catechisms. Robert Bailey, one of the commissioners, wrote of him his presence was very necessary. His presence was very necessary. Commissioner at the Assembly of Divines in Westminster. Now, Rutherford, political analyst. Rutherford, political analyst. During Rutherford's time in London, he wrote the work for which, apart from his letters, he is most famous. It is called, as I mentioned earlier, Lex Rex, or The Law and the King, subtitled, A Dispute for the Just Prerogatives of King and People. And in Lex Rex, Rutherford demonstrated the need for government by constitutional law. He was not proposing a republic. He was proposing that definite legal bounds be set to the power of the king. Remember the context. Uh, The Stuart kings were very autocratic. Uh, They believed in absolutism, the absolute power of the king, that they were above the law and not subject to the law. So so that's the the importance of this document. In, In Lex Rex, Rutherford proposed, a limited and mixed monarchy had the glory, order, unity from a monarch. From the government of the most and wisest, it hath safety of counsel, statute, strength. From the influence of the commons, it hath liberty, privileges, promptitude of obedience. In many ways, Lex Rex charted the path towards modern British democracy. It is a monumental work. Charles I, on the throne at the time confessed that it was never likely to be answered. Dr. Alexander Smelly affirms that it is, quote, the constitutional inheritance of all countries in modern times. More recently Francis Schaeffer has drawn attention to the influence of Rutherford and Lex Rex on the Constitution of the United States of America. I quote, Here, he writes, was a concept of freedom without chaos because there was a form. Or to put it another way, here was a government of law rather than of the arbitrary decisions of men because the Bible as the final authority was there as the base. The Encyclopaedia Britannica accords Samuel Rutherford A recognized place among the early writers on constitutional law. Lex Rex was published when the English Civil War was in progress and provided the spiritual basis for the parliamentarians, the Puritans, to rise up against the tyrannical reign of their king. Of course this made Rutherford unpopular with the Cavaliers or the king's men and eventually as we will see in the conclusion Lex Rex was the reason why he was charged with treason and would ultimately have been executed if death had not taken him before that happened. So Rutherford the political analyst. Now Rutherford the protester. Rutherford the protester. Soon after Rutherford returned to Scotland after his stay in London the Covenanters held the reins of power in both church and state. By this stage, Charles I was a prisoner of the English Parliament, I think on the Isle of Wight. Some Scottish nobles who were emotionally loyal to the king of Scottish ancestry made a secret treaty with him called the Engagement. And in the treaty, the nobles agreed to raise an army in Scotland, to help the king regain his throne. In return, the king promised to permit the solemn legal covenant to be sanctioned by parliament and to support Presbyterian church government throughout his realm for three years, after which time the form of church government would be established by a commission of divines. When the fact of the engagement became publicly known in Scotland early in 1648, many of the covenanters were incensed. They were appalled and absolutely opposed to the plan. The commission of the assembly, the commission of the church assembly met of which Rutherford was a prominent member. It issued a statement that the engagement, this agreement that the nobles had made with the imprisoned Charles I had issued a statement that the engagement was sinful and involved perjury by breach of covenant vice, was breaking the solemn Egan Covenant, which they had made with the, with, the, with the Puritans, the Roundheads, and would therefore draw the displeasure of God in the Church and nation of Scotland. The royalist nobles were in control of the Parliament and so the protests of the Assembly were ignored. An army was raised, uh, marched south, and was defeated by Cromwell at Preston. So the engagement had thus failed in its objectives. Cromwell, as a consequence, purged the Scottish Parliament of loyalist sympathies, which left the stricter Covenanters in control, And on the 4th of January 1649 the Parliament passed an Act of Classes which enumerated four classes of persons ineligible for public office because they were guilty of breach of covenant. Scotland, now professing to be a Christian and a Reformed nation, stipulated scriptural qualifications for those serving in civil government, serving in the civil government of a nation, covenanted to Christ. And so the political theory of Simon Rutherford, as defined in Lex Rex, was becoming a reality. A few weeks after the act of classes became law, Charles I was executed by the English On the 31st of January 1649. Both church and state in Scotland condemned this regicide as a breach of the solemn League and Covenant. Because in the covenant, although they were opposed to the king's rule, they had pledged themselves to support the king's person. In the tide of emotion that followed Charles, Charles's son was invited to Scotland to take the throne. Cromwell, understandably, reacted to these plans, marched north and soundly defeated the Scots at Dunbar in September 1650. Nevertheless, the Scots persevered with their plan and, as we look on it now, with the benefit of hindsight, foolishly foolishly, crowned Charles II King at Scone near Perth after he had subscribed the covenants. An ungodly man, but yet he was prepared to subscribe these covenants in order to gain power. Following his coronation, Simon Rutherford delivered to him a speech in Latin on the duty of kings. Cromwell could not tolerate this threat to the nation and again prepared to engage the Scots in battle. The recently defeated Scots army needed reinforcements. Parliament and Assembly consulted and decided to pass certain resolutions by which people, disqualified by the active active classes as spiritually unsuitable for leadership in the army, could now be placed in positions of responsibility. The passing of these resolutions to open up the way for covenant breakers into positions of power and authority, grieved Simon Rutherford. And not only grieved him, but also inflamed his passions in opposition to them. Along with 21 other ministers, he protested the legality of the action taken by the General Assembly in ratifying these public (coughs) resolutions, but received very little support. Subsequently, he and his friends became known as protesters. And that divided the Covenanters at that point in Scottish church history into two groups, the protesters, of which Simon Rutherford was the leader, and the resolutioners, of which the more liberal party uh, supported. It had hurt Simon Rutherford deeply that his friend, David Dixon, strongly opposed him and another friend, Robert Blair, sided with the resolutioners. This controversy resulted in a deep and sometimes bitter division in the ranks of the Covenanters. Rutherford was often attacked for the position that he adopted. Writing to Simeon Ash, a Puritan minister in London in 1656, Rutherford complained of treatment meted out to him, by the resolutioners. I quote, uh, writing to Simeon, they do persecute the godly and in pulpits and presbyteries declaim against us as implacable and separatists. Rutherford may have been in the minority in opposing the public resolutions, but a 20th century historian, J.G. Voss, makes a comment most of the really earnest Christians of Scotland were numbered in the ranks of the protesters. To this statement, Scottish historian Hetherington adds the comment, The writings of the protesters are thoroughly pervaded by a spirit of fervent piety and contain principles of the loftiest order, stated in language of great force and even dignity of which we find but few similar instances in the productions of the resolutioners. So these historians vindicate the stand taken by Rutherford and the protesters. Their conclusion is based on the fact that many of the people admitted to public office by the public resolutions became, after 1660, some of the chief persecutors of the Covenanters. David Dixon admitted to a lady who visited him in his deathbed in 1662. And and he's famous because of a a commentary that has been recently republished by Banner of Truth, a little thick, uh, or a large thick book um, on the Psalms. This is the same David Dixon. And on his deathbed, this is what he said, I must confess, madam, that the protesters have been much truer prophets than we were. Samuel Rutherford, the protester. and now uh, Samuel Rutherford, the martyr. the last major point. After, Simon, after Charles II resumed power in 1660 at the Restoration, he began his persecution measures. In Scotland, the leading protesters were the first to experience the cruelty of his reign. In the autumn of 1660, Rutherford's book Lex Rex was condemned as treasonable because it had set limits to royal authority. All copies of it that could be found were to be gathered before the middle of October and burned at the Mercat Cross in Edinburgh. And also at the gates of the college where Rutherford taught at St Andrews. And there they were to be burned. Early in the spring of 1661, Parliament cited Samuel Rutherford to appear before the bar of the house to answer a charge of treason. The messengers found Rutherford on his deathbed. His response to them is a classic. Tell them I have a summons already before a superior judge and judiciary and I behove to answer my first summons and ere your day come I will be where few kings and great folks come A few days later Rutherford died Before he died four members of his presbytery came to visit him He made them welcome and said, My Lord and Master is the chief of ten thousand. None is comparable to him in heaven or earth. Dear brethren, do all for him. Pray for Christ. Preach for Christ. Feed the flock committed to your charge for Christ. Do all for Christ. Beware of men pleasing, the chief shepherd will appear shortly. Thus died Samuel Rutherford, exalting Christ, on the morning of March the 18th, 1661. Elizabeth Cousins begins her poem with that deathbed scene in mind. The sands of time are sinking the dawn of heaven breaks the summer morn i sighed for the fair sweet morn awakes dark dark hath been the midnight but day spring is at hand and glory glory dwelleth in emmanuel's land the record of samuel rutherford's life remains a constant challenge to those who would serve Christ today, his service for the Lord was Christ centered and Christ glorifying from beginning to end. Through his preaching, his listeners were able to observe the loveliness of Christ. And friends, that kind of preaching is much needed in our day. His preaching was colorful colourful with well-chosen illustrations and graphic metaphors. As such, it became a visual presentation of the truth. 21st century preachers could learn much from his method. In pastoral care, Rutherford excelled. His love for the flock of God within his parish and beyond its bounds found expression in his preaching found expression in his prayers, found expression in his visits, found expression in his catechizing, found expression in his letters. The Church of Christ need much of that loving and attentive pastoral care. Finally, Rutherford saw Christ in all his majesty, describing him often as his kingly king. The overriding principle of his life was to glorify his saviour by applying the kingship of Christ, the rule of Christ, to every area of life. Samuel Rutherford was not a perfect man, but as a loyal covenanter who served Christ in the 17th century, he is a worthy example for every Christian to follow in the 21st century. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Robert. Professor McCullum has said he's willing to take questions. Uh, We have time for some questions, but I do make a commitment we're going to complete the meeting tonight and go away by quarter past nine, so that's a promise. However, if there are questions... Let's take them, please. However simple they might be, don't make them too profound. Anyone would like to make the first point or question? Thank you very much for the words. Um, you mentioned that uh, he, he, Samuel Rutherford brought in uh, constitutional her- inheritance, freedom without chaos. I wonder if Samuel Rutherford was standing there tonight... How would he describe the difference? How could he describe the difference between freedom and, or liberty and license? Because I just wonder whether we've got confused in our thinking about those terms. Liberty, what is liberty and how does it differ from license? Did you get the gist of that question? I don't think the people at the back did. Liberty and license, is there a difference? And can Sam help us on that? Robert. Mm.
0: Well, Simon Rutherford would have answered that by saying that there's perfect liberty within the framework of God's revealed word. And that, became, that was the basis of Lex Rex. That that was the check upon the king's uh, uh, freedom, his king's liberty. He was called to account by the law of God. Uh, it's the same with, with Christian liberty. We have perfect liberty within the framework of God's moral law. But once we remove... That, that, that framework then we have license uh, and we have all kinds of vices. So, so so I think it's the same if you can apply the analogy of uh, our, our Christian liberty to that of political life. Uh, and if you think of what has been happening in our own political system, we've, been ha- we've had the dismantling of the, 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 the moral laws that have undergirded our nation uh, and, and then that has led to license of all kinds of chaos and immorality and, and the government doesn't know what to do about it. it it's, it's wanting morality without righteousness. That, that's, that's what we have in our current state of affairs but that just won't happen.
1: Purely factual question. Did Rutherford remain a parish minister while he was doing these other things to, to the end of his life?
0: No. no, He had, he had in 1639 he had to give up uh, the parish at Anwath, uh, much to his regret. Uh, the assembly, uh not say forced him, but they, 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 they pled with him to accept the appointment uh, as professor uh, in the college. But then he was able to preach in St Andrews in the various pulpits and around every Lord's Day. So no, he, that, that was the end. Anwath was the only place where he had the parish ministry. <coughs>
1: Over here, John. I wonder if you could tell us uh, what limits uh, Samuel Rutherford would have placed upon his circle of fellowship, if you know what I mean. I mean, those uh, he would have considered uh, honest ministers of the gospel. We are quite a mixed bunch here, despite having the fellowship that you talk about. Or a mixed bunch. I'm amazed to hear it myself. But I take your word for it, sir.
0: Well, anyway, um, uh, there's there's a couple of examples I want to give. First of all, he was writing to Simeon Ash in London, a Puritan, and so even though there had been uh, political difficulties between the Puritans and the Covenanters, yet here was the minister writing uh, on a common basis as to each other's sympathy. So there was that, that that coming and going and a recognition. And another man who... Now, I can't verify for the validity of this anecdote, but but it's it's been report, reported over and over again, and I think there may be some credibility to it. But uh, on one particular occasion, a stranger came to the manse at Anwath uh, on a Saturday evening and... Uh, the, 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 he was he was put up for the evening, and uh, so so. Uh, the, uh, Simon Rutherford wanted to know what kind of man was claiming to be a Christian. So he asked him a basic question: how many commandments there are? Uh, and this this man said eleven. So uh, so Simon Rutherford uh, thought, well, this is not much of a much of a man. No, in fact. I'm getting the story the wrong way around. It was the visitor asked Simon Rutherford the question how many commandments there were, and he said 11. And so the visitor didn't think much of him uh, until the the next morning, early in the morning, he heard Simon Rutherford praying, and he realised that he was a godly man. And then in church that day, he was preaching a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. (laughs) And, and And that visitor was Archbishop Usher from Armagh, and, and the two men developed a kinship and a relationship. So there was uh, the man who had suffered much from the Episcopalian party recognising uh, a godly, upright, reformed believer in, in, in Archbishop Usher. Yes. And they, had, they, had, they were kindred spirits as, as far as they could go uh, at that level. So, yes, there were, there were relationships between believers who had the gospel uh, in their hearts. And they practiced that in their lives. Thank
1: you. <clears throat> Mr. Hague, yes. Where are today's protesters? The question was, where are today's protesters? <laughs> hey? Did the dice? Can you hear what he said?
0: Well, humility uh, forbids me almost to answer that question, but the followers of Samuel Rutherford were basically persecuted out of existence in in the 17th century. Uh, 18,000 of them suffered either by death or by banishment or impoverishment under the persecution of Charles II. Uh, When uh, eventually there was a glorious revolution and the Stuarts were ousted, Uh, A small minority continuing the principles of Simon Rutherford refused to accept the revolution settlement and they met in societies and in small groups and eventually formed themselves into the Reformed Presbyterian Church. So if any people could be considered the heirs of the protesters, it's the Reformed Presbyterian Churches throughout the world. Of which the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Ireland is one.
1: Okay. any other points or questions I'm dying to make a point and statement which is not a question either but I think I shouldn't <laughs> so so do- <laughs> well in listening to Robert today I'm just struck as he talks to us about the letters written by Samuel Ruthford and the preaching I sometimes hear What is missing, it seems to me today, is a a passion and a a real sense of a relationship with Christ, which clearly Rutherford had and talked about and wrote about. Am I right in saying that it appears to be generally missing, with honourable exceptions, of course, or is it just my misfortune?
0: No, I I think you've put your finger on it, It's one of the weaknesses of, of uh, the Reformed fraternity that, that uh, yeah, we, have, we have got things worked out in our heads, but our hearts are not always in uh, the, the, the things that we believe. And so there should be a passion, there should be an earnestness, there should be tears as we preach Christ and as we commend Christ to others. That, that's the thing about Rutherford, his heart was in it all. And the heart and head were, 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 were synchronized. And so, yes, sir, the, there needs to be the passion that Rutherford had and that many of our ancestors had, and, and all the traditions, I believe, that are represented here. Okay.
1: The man on the machine here would like to ask a question. Is that allowed or can it be <laughs> Um, Thinking of our situation today and the uh, increasing restriction on the freedom of Christians, (coughs) at what point do you think Rutherford would have permitted civil disobedience? Does that make sense? Did you all hear the question? Civil disobedience. What would Rutherford have to say about that? Would you encourage it? And do you?
0: (laughs) Uh, I most certainly do. Um, there, there was a time when, when quite recently, when, when things that I was saying in my own congregation could have led me to be arrested and, and, and uh, fined or put in prison, and we've got to be prepared for that. And so I think Rutherford uh, may have been imprisoned uh, in the world of today. And uh, I sometimes hear, and I'm grieved at this, that certain Christians were forced to do something because of a particular law that was passed. A Christian should never be forced to do anything contrary to the mind and will of Christ. And take the consequences, be it a fine, be it imprisonment, be it eventually execution. We've got to hold our nerve and take our stand or else the world will just sweep us aside. And it's when we do take our stand, then the world will begin to think, these people really believe these things. Because I think what happens out there in the world is that that they think we have a sentiment about certain things, but when push comes to shove, we'll just, we'll just fold over and run away. And, and we've got to show, that, like Samuel Rutherford that we're in this for real, and that we're prepared to take our stand and to forfeit our lives, if that's what's necessary, and stand with each other.
1: <clears throat> yes, there's a question in the doorway there. Professor McCollum, you very kindly addressed the staff of the Christian Institute earlier today and I wonder if I could ask you a question which uh, invites you to uh, uh, repeat some of the things that we benefited from this morning. You made the point that Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, uh, had such a great influence. It was uh, a legal uh, and political earthquake at the time. I studied law here in Newcastle and we learned about Rutherford in a secular uh, law uh, 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 lecture. Uh, So clearly he's had an immense uh, impact uh, on politics. But uh, today, of course, there are people who say that uh, Christians shouldn't uh, be allowed to have an influence on politics. I'm talking about secularists who say that Christians shouldn't be allowed to have an influence on the public square. How do we answer those people? Would like to summarise your talk this morning (laughs) in (laughs) a few (laughs) minutes?
0: Well, this morning we were talking about having a Christian world and life view, uh, applying Christianity to all of life. And in relation to, to that question, uh, when seculars say, well, what, what authority have you to, to interfere in, in politics in education, in methic- medical ethics, uh, we, we, we make the point that, that we are ambassadors of a king. Uh, Jesus Christ is the king of heaven, he is our king, and he has commissioned us to be his ambassadors in all of life. And so when, when, we, when we address politicians, we're not uh, addressing them on our own authority. We're not uh, speaking on, on, on giving them our own ideas, but we're passing on the message of the king because he is their lord, whether they recognize it or not. And they need to hear what he has to say, and one day they will be held accountable either for listening to him or not listening to him. And so that will give us a holy boldness in standing up to these secularists or to these ungodly men that would seek to to, to intimidate us into silence. And no matter what sphere of life it's in, uh, uh, politics, education, uh, the world of medicine, the world of the legal world, uh, the art world, whatever, we are ambassadors of the king and... The people need to hear what the king has said in his word. I was struck by your point about us needing to
1: allow the doctrine to fall from our heads to our hearts. Hmm. And would you agree with me in modern society it seems to be easier to listen to each other rather than to listen to Christ
0: himself? We might find our hearts strangely warmed, and maybe brought to fiery heat if we could live such a life.
1: Do we listen too much to each other, or is it easier to do that than to Christ? Is that the summary of what you say?
0: I think some some fault may rest with the preachers of today, that that uh, Christ is in all the scriptures, and Christ should form the centre. Of every sermon that we preach, there should be a route to Christ in every text. And so we, were all, we would be always bringing Christ before our people in a warm and compassionate and earnest way. And I think that would lead us to be more drawn to Christ and have greater affection. I mean, those quotes from Rutherford demonstrate this man was in love with Christ uh, in a passionate way. It, could, it came across in his letters, it came across in his preaching. It came across in his, his lectures, it came across in, in Lex Rex, that was the motivation that Christ would be recognised as Lord of the nation and given his place in the political sphere of the United Kingdom or the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. Uh, and, and I think we, we need to be more in love with Christ and then I think that would affect our conversation and we would stimulate and encourage each other to love Christ more. Uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, I, I once heard a, a young, man, young Christian man saying that he wasn't prepared to follow a particular Christian practice because of what his parents would say. And Christ said that we're to love uh, him more than all of these. And if any man hateth not his father and mother, brother and sister, uh, then he is no disciple of mine. Or that's a, a rough uh, quotation. And that really means that we put Christ first above all, all relationships, uh, above all aspects of work, above our own life itself. I think if that begins to get across, then we begin to show Christ and to show Christ to others.